0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at Fidelity.com/slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services Member NYSC S
1: I P C From the Newsroom of the Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from the Washington Post. I'm calling. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at the Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zack from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 14th. Today, the consequences of withdrawing U.S. troops from Syria, how money is transforming President Trump's reelection campaign, and the California blackouts.
2: A lot has happened in the last week, and the situation is evolving quickly on the ground. And so today, what we saw was the arrival of Syrian government forces for the first time in any number in years to key towns in northern Syria. I'm Missy Ryan. I cover the Pentagon for The
1: Washington Post. Just over a week ago, President Trump announced that he's withdrawing troops from northern Syria. And Missy says that with this announcement, he's basically abandoning longstanding U.S. policy.
2: I think that it's perhaps helpful to dial back to 2015, when the U.S. military first went into Syria on the ground, and it began battling the Islamic State, which at that point held a huge swath of territory across Iraq and Syria. And the forces that the U.S. military began working with in Syria were these Kurdish forces, a Kurdish militia called the Syrian Democratic Forces. And over the course of the last four years, The Kurdish forces, the SDF, and the U.S. military really succeeded in wiping out the Islamic State caliphate. But what happened was, over the course of that time, the United States had this tension with its NATO ally, Turkey, just to the north, which saw those same Kurdish forces as a threat to their national security because it categorizes them as a terrorist group. And so this was a problem that was a long time in the making. The United States really made this alliance of convenience, of necessity in Syria. And now that partnership, the challenges associated with that are really coming to roost. And we're seeing this chaotic situation unfold in the ground as a result.
1: And part of what broke that partnership between the U.S. and Kurdish forces in northern Syria was this announcement from President Trump that happened a little over a week ago. What was that? And tell me about what has been happening since then. What began this series of events was last Sunday,
2: the White House announced that it was moving a small number of American forces positioned in northern Syria to make way for what was subsequently a major Turkish military offensive into Syria. And what the Turks have been doing since then has been launching airstrikes, artillery, and pushing these Turkish-supported syrian uh, militia forces into northern syria to fight against the american partner forces the syrian kurdish forces and that has unleashed full chaos in northern syria you've got civilians fleeing you've got reports of airstrikes on non-combatant areas you have uh, isis families and isis militants being released from prisons and most significantly, you have the Syrian Kurdish force, which has been this steadfast American ally since 2015, just yesterday announcing that it was cutting a deal with the Assad regime, which has been the American adversary in Syria. And the reason why that they're, the Syrian Kurds are doing that is that they feel like America has abandoned them and left them to their fate against this much better armed Turkish military. And so what the Kurds have said is, We're going to invite you in, Assad regime. You can help us battle the Turks. And this is a major turning point in the Syrian conflict. It really is handing a significant victory to the Assad regime.
1: And what is the status of the withdrawal of American troops?
2: That's an interesting question, and it's something that we in the national security team for The Washington Post are tracking closely. But we've got a lot of conflicting information over the last 48 hours, and I think that that is a reflection of the fact that this policy is being made sort of on the fly because President Trump's discussions with President Erdogan and the decision to at least acknowledge the reality of his military offensive against the Kurds, because that upended the the longstanding U.S. policy. Everybody's having to scramble, and so we're talking to people in the administration, and they're saying we don't really know what the plan is. We think it could be this, we think it could be that. But what we do know is that President Trump has given orders to withdraw most or all American troops from Syria in the coming weeks, and the Pentagon is already in the process of putting that in motion. So what they're doing right now is pulling forces southward. They're preparing to move some to Iraq and to other places in the Middle East. They are looking at options for potentially keeping smaller numbers of forces in Syria. But um, they also have to contend with the reality that the Islamic State is potentially growing more strong at a time when they're drawing down their military presence. So those two things are really going to come into into conflict in the future.
1: And, of course, I can imagine that it's even more complicated thinking about getting these American troops out – if there is this active conflict that's happening now on the northern border of Syria.
2: Absolutely. And force protection is, as always, the primary concern for the Pentagon leadership, which, by the way, it should be said, did not support the withdrawal of American forces. Most Pentagon leaders that I've talked to um, that—and we've been covering this for for years now— have supported a gradual withdrawal from Syria once the Islamic State threat was fully extinguished, and that hasn't happened yet. And so what they're having to do right now is focus on getting out U.S. troops safely. We saw last Friday that there was an incident in which the Turkish military fired artillery very close to a known American position in northern Syria – Nobody was hurt, but that was a sign of the kind of things that could happen if you have American forces in the mix. And so that's why the Pentagon leadership, despite the fact that they didn't really want to end the operation in this way, that's why they're having to pull back at this moment.
1: That basically things are so uncertain there, so risky, that it's it's too dangerous to have American troops there at all. Exactly. So is there anything that President Trump can do to— put the brakes on things to help slow down the speed at which things seem to be unraveling in this part of Syria?
2: Well, there have been proposals that have been discussed between the Turkish and U.S. governments in the past few weeks, things that the United States could offer Turkey, sort of quid pro quos, previously to last week to stop them from launching this operation. Um, it, it seems like those things are now sort of falling by the wayside because Turkey has already, the, the operation is now underway. But what seems like might happen as early as today would be some sort of announcement of sanctions, U.S. sanctions against the Turkish government, including possibly against the president, President Erdogan himself. So the hope would be that that would force the Turks to maybe dial it back or agree to go back to this previous arrangement that the that you the U.S. and Turkey had to patrol parts of northern Syria. But, you know, even Secretary Esper, the defense secretary, said on TV yesterday that he didn't expect that to happen.
3: Look, it's a very terrible situation over there, a situation caused by the Turks, by President Erdogan. Despite our opposition, they decided to make this incursion into uh, Syria. And at this point in time, in the last 24 hours, we learned that uh, they likely intend to expand their attack further south than originally planned and to the west. And so what we find ourselves is we have American forces likely caught between two opposing advancing armies, and it's a very untenable situation.
2: Turkey really seems very committed to continuing and expanding this military operation. So nobody really expects that to,
1: to occur. And it seems ironic that President Trump would be on the phone with President Erdogan a week ago basically saying sure if you guys want to enter into northern syria we're not going to stop you and then to turn around and and say actually if you try to do that now that you're doing it we're going to we're going to put economic sanctions on you so what we know about that call was that it was not
2: supposed to be about turkey's military operation in syria president trump called president erdoğan and they discussed trade and some other things and then at, there was this unscripted moment at the end of the call in which President Ter- Erdogan, the Post has reported, brought up the military operation, and then President Trump responded. And what the White House has said about his response was that he told Erdogan that he didn't support the operation and that there were potential consequences for Turkey. But you know what critics have alleged is that Trump basically gave Erdogan the green light because, you know, he didn't push back hard enough um, or didn't threaten the use of force or didn't threaten to, you know, keep U.S. forces there. So um, that really was the um, catalyst for all the events that we're seeing right now.
1: Are there concerns that what is happening now could be a problem for other U.S. relationships with other countries in terms of making the case that Americans aren't to be trusted when it comes to creating partnerships and being allies? Absolutely. I mean, the whole
2: counterterrorism model of the Pentagon and the U.S. government over the last 10 years has been cultivating partnerships with local forces all over the world. We do it in Africa. We do it in the Middle East. We do it in Central Asia. And those partnerships are predicated Uh, on a sense of trust between these militias who often risk their own lives to fight on behalf of the United States, often in their own interests as well. But what's necessary to get people to sign up to fight is the belief that they're not gonna be sold down the river, you know, when things get difficult. And so that's what we're really seeing in the Middle East right now is questioning of America's fidelity as a partner.
1: Missy Ryan covers the Pentagon and military issues for The Post. So thinking back to 2016, Exactly how big was Donald Trump's campaign operation at that time? It was actually quite small. Michelle Lee covers money in politics for The Post.
4: There was this upstart team of people who hadn't really done presidential politics before.
3: Live now is Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Well, thanks for having me on. And first, we have to think about how big of a problem Joining me
4: now and now. nodding here on set with me is the man behind that marketing and website design firm, the Donald Trump campaign digital director, Brad Parscale. Thank you for this, uh, this opportunity this Thank you here. for having me on. They were working out of the Trump Tower, kind of near where The Apprentice was filmed, inside the building. Data. Here's the thing. I've talked, to, you know, I've talked to a lot of data folks, especially on the GOP side. And there was yeah. some people who said, listen, he doesn't, feeding you, you, you you don't work in politics yeah, you have not been on a political campaign before and it was a tiny team that was basically stressed really thin
1: and he he talked about this this was, this was a big bragging point for him the fact that he had less money he had fewer consultants
4: yeah, when he was running his campaign, there were a lot of people who criticized him for having such a small operation and not really having professional staff. He doesn't have much of a campaign. He hasn't grown.
3: there's no communications team, there's no policy team, there's
4: no stand- and he made it kind of his thing to say, Look, I'm a businessman, I know how to spend money.
3: There is no infrastructure whatsoever. No. I mean, Trump has specifically decided this is how he
4: And I'm spending it well. I have a lean operation, and I'm my own political consultant. I know what I'm doing.
1: Now, fast forward to 2019, the lead up to 2020. What does Donald Trump's campaign operation look like now?
4: President Trump's re-elect operation looks nothing like it did four years ago. He has spent more money than any of the predecessors had at this point in the campaign. And that's because President Trump's campaign never ended. As soon as he became president, as soon as election day was over, he was essentially raising money and campaigning for his re-election. And by doing that, he's had a massive war chest that no other president before him has enjoyed. And by having that massive war chest, he has been spending over half a billion dollars through various committees really setting the message out there, flooding the airwaves with ads, even fighting back when this impeachment inquiry is happening. He's able to run millions of dollars in TV ads in the most expensive markets to defend himself and defend his presidency.
1: And when you say that he's been spending over half a billion dollars, exactly how much is that an increase from where we were at in the 2016 cycle?
4: By the time President Trump was a presumptive Republican nominee in 2016, he had only spent about $63 million. And that was so low for a presidential campaign, especially compared to other opponents who had a big campaign team and a super PAC supporting them. President Trump had only spent $63 million, whereas now he has spent over $500 million, which is exponentially greater than what he had spent This point four years ago.
1: And where is all of this money going to?
4: A lot of the money is going to paying staff, running ads, doing voter registration efforts, really the run of the mill, professional campaigning that you would expect from a presidential campaign. However, a lot of the money is also flowing to dozens of political consultants. It's really interesting how it's changed since the f- first time around. Because when President Trump was running to become the GOP nominee, he maybe had like 20 consultants. Now there are over 200 political consultants who are helping him, and they're really just helping the entire re-election apparatus and drawing millions of dollars to their own consulting firms.
1: And what's interesting is that a lot of these consultants are people who were basically made famous, made successful by Donald Trump in 2016. And that- Previous to that campaign, they were relatively unknown.
4: Right. It's really interesting when you look at the mix of these consultants, how President Trump has reshaped the way the party and its operatives work now. You see new political consultants who had not had experience in presidential politics, but came into Washington thanks to President Trump. They worked on his campaign in 16, or they were in the transition, or um, working for the White House early on. And now they're making money off of the reelect effort. And you also see longtime GOP operatives who worked for Trump's opponents in 16, competing against him to try to defeat him in the primaries, but now working in lockstep with the Republican Party to help him get reelected. These are people who President Trump shunned before and characterized as the swamp that he wanted to drain from Washington. But now they're working fully together and have embraced each other. So who exactly are some of these consultants? Some of these consultants are people who— were a part of the winning team in 2016. They include Keith Schiller, who was a longtime bodyguard of President Trump, Sean Spicer, who you might remember, former White House spokesman, Raj Shah, another former White House spokesman, Corey Lewandowski, who briefly ran his campaign in the early days. And then there's Brad Parscale, who really has an interesting story. Five years ago, Brad Parscale was a web developer in Texas. No one really knew him. He was kind of plucked out of obscurity to work for the president's campaign and kind of help him and develop his website. Parscale says he only charged like $1,500 for that website that he set up for President Trump's first campaign. And now he is the president's re-elect campaign manager. He is making millions of dollars through his consulting firms, and his consulting firm is by far the highest paid among all the consultants who are getting money from the committee supporting his re-election. To what extent is this unusual, though? Because I feel like a lot of how
1: politics works is that people end up working for a campaign, working for an administration. They end up being successful in that job. And then the perk is that you get to quit, go off, start a consulting company and make a bunch of money. So is this really particular to Trump or have we seen this, for example, with Obama?
4: Right. In many ways, this is how Washington works. But that's kind of the interesting part about it, right? Because Trump was supposed to be the outsider candidate who was going to upend the traditional ways that political operatives work in Washington and how lobbyists and consultants all make money off of politics. And now you're seeing this is pretty much how it used to work and it's still working the way it used to. And another thing is that there is historic amounts of money flowing to help his reelection, And there's just a lot more money to be made now than, say, under President Obama at this point. And the fact that there are so many people who are working toward his re-election, getting money to their businesses, and able to kind of cash in on this massive war chest that President Trump has, that's unique. How is that comparing to Democrats so far who
1: look like they're leading the polls?
4: Democrats so far are still fighting it out with each other. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both posted about $25 million this quarter that's huge. And a lot of their donations are being driven by small-dollar donations, people giving $10, $20 to their campaign because they really believe in the movement that is Sanders and Warren. We've seen the limitations of campaigns that don't have the sort of a massive grassroots army this quarter, mainly Joe Biden, because Biden has taken more of a traditional approach, doing the closed-door fundraisers, courting executives, and that's the type of scenery that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are really rejecting. They're saying, no, we can create this movement without leaning on those traditional wealthy executives and donors whose money that we believe you know, shouldn't be defining politics. Joe Biden posted about 15 million, which is about 10 million less than Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. There's still such a large field on the Democratic side. It's going to take many, many more months for them to figure out who their eventual nominee is before they, they can even turn to Trump. Meanwhile, what a lot of people don't pay attention to is that over the past two and a half years, President Trump has started his re-election campaign. That is kind of in the background and overshadowed by the excitement on the Democratic side, by people who really think that the anti-Trump energy is going to be enough to fuel people to the polls and want to unseat President Trump. But what Trump is doing is really building the infrastructure that no one on the left really has the bandwidth to pay attention to right now. And it's the infrastructure that didn't exist for him four years ago. If you think about President Trump's first election as his messaging resonating with the right people and all the right pieces kind of falling into place on his behalf and getting him elected, now the pieces are being put together in a much more organized and intentional way.
1: There's this narrative that what happened in 2016 was sort of a perfect storm, people say, that the circumstances aligned so that President Trump could be president, but that now that's not a perfect storm anymore. That's just a product of the level of fundraising and organization that is going into this campaign.
4: Right. There are people who are generating that storm now.
1: Michelle Lee covers money and influence in politics for The Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now
1: one more thing. After a shutdown of the electrical grid in Northern California last week, the power is back on. But there are still big questions about a utility company's decision to impose a blackout to reduce the risk of wildfires. The power was
3: shut off sort of in stages last week in attempt by Pacific Gas and Electric, the large utility company, one of the largest in the country, to lessen fire risk.
1: Scott Wilson is a senior national correspondent covering California. PG&E was worried about wind knocking down live power lines and sparks igniting nearby trees or brush.
3: Weather expectations had been for heavy, dry winds, which are the key to fires, starting wildfires and driving wildfires here in California. And so it was the largest intentional power shutoff in state history and it affected at one point as many as 2 million people.
2: I live in Megalia, California, and um, while we have a generator, it's in the shop. And due to the fact that there are so many people who need generators and parts for their generators, it takes weeks to get them fixed.
3: Uh, PG&E very blithely said uh, to people in my category or, or even or in more serious categories, Well, if you must use uh, a medical device that's uh, electricity-dependent during the blackout, well, you should find another place to live, uh, as if that were the easiest thing in the world, in the Bay Area especially. Uh, It's not not an easy thing to do, and certainly not on short notice. It felt a lot to people like it was a political act by Pacific Gas and Electric. And I say that because PG&E is now in bankruptcy and they would like the law changed in California. The law now says that any wildfire started by a utility company's equipment, whether they're negligent or not, is their responsibility and they would be responsible for paying damages. They've been urging Sacramento to loosen that law and by saying, hey, look, here's what we'll do if you don't. We'll just shut off power when we feel it's necessary to millions of people. Uh, It felt a little bit like a public negotiation taking place to people who were losing business and schools that were canceled and uh, a lot of uh, small and large inconveniences that, that rippled across the region last week. Almost to a person, people were saying, you know, we don't want this to happen again going forward. We want better explanations. We want more warning. And more than anything, we really want much more control over the utilities than the government seems to have right now. You know, as this was going on in the north, Santa Ana winds were picked up in Southern California and started two fires in the Los Angeles area, both of which are still burning. There were no fires started by PG&E equipment in the areas affected, but there'll never be a fire started by utility company equipment if the power's off. And so there has to be some sort of middle ground, the government and the residents affected are saying between we're just shutting off power, regardless of how risky the situation is, to we keep it on even when winds are reaching 85 miles an hour, which is essentially what happened in Paradise last year. You may recall that fire, which was the deadliest in California state history caused by pg e equipment that burned 14,000 houses and killed 85 people. So a lot of this debate is unfolding in the shadow of that Paradise Fire, which isn't even a year old yet. But at the same time, if the only way to stop fires is to turn off the power, then Californians really want you know that, that to be looked into in a much more aggressive way by regulators and by Governor Newsom.
1: Scott Wilson covers California for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. And shout out to listener Michael Funk. Michael said that he enjoyed our ode to the lithium-ion battery last week after the inventors won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. But Michael did not appreciate the shade that we threw at other Nobel Prize winning chemistry projects, which we described as sounding almost incomprehensible. Michael, if you want to explain the meaning of the phrase, cryo-electron microscopy for the high resolution structure determination of biomolecules, feel free to give me a shout anytime. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.